Is everybody excited about sweater weather? <laughs> As I am. <laughs> okay, good. Um, well, let's, let's begin. I won't make you all sing because it's a little cold and voices need to warm up and we can do that later. Uh, all right. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor and further us with your continual help that in all our works, begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I think we've got a number of new people with us today, so I'm going to kind of give a little introduction to what catechesis is. You're coming in kind of at the, at the time where it really just starts to go crazy, uh, but I want to give you just an overview of what it is. The, the Greek word katecheo uh, appears in the New Testament eight times. Um, and um, Paul actually says that I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to, and he uses the word katecheo, um, and I'm not terribly good at Greek, so I can't give you the exact way he puts it, but to catechize others, right? I'd rather speak five words with my mind to catechize others than 10,000 in a tongue. So obviously for Paul, this work of teaching and instruction is really important. That's what the word katecheo means. Um, and in the church's early tradition, catechesis was this practice of how do you instruct um, new Christians or new believers or even those just who don't know what they believe yet and are sort of figuring it out and just com- maybe even just compelled by Christian lives, compelled by the witness of the martyrs, compelled by uh, the witness of their friends and neighbors who happen to be Christians. Um, how do you do that? And especially the question of how do you do that when those coming into the church for the first time are pagans, right? I mean, there are people becoming Christians who had been, until the week before, carving idols in an idol studio, right? How do you do that, right? There had been uh, Christians who were coming into the church who were like uh, living in pagan families, unsure about a lot of things. Um, Remember that uh, in the early centuries of the church, uh, Roman society is collapsing. I mean, it, it pretty much completely collapsed and freefall collapses in the late third century. Um, but uh, it's a time where uh, the, the culture is falling apart and people are starting to have serious, and this has been happening even uh, in the first century, especially in the first century, um, people are having serious doubts about the veracity of the cult, right? Now, what happens when people have serious doubts about the veracity of the, uh, of the cult? <laughs> This is a way to put it. I'm probably speaking in too high a terms. What happens when people have doubts about their religion? This is happening today in, in America. You get deconstruction. And deconstruction is scary because it actually deconstructs the society that's around you. Um, what was different about those early centuries is that there was something for people to do about that, right? You could, you could say, hey, you know, I don't have a whole lot of faith that, uh, that, that Zeus is going to pull off any, any major miracles these days. Like, that's over. We don't believe in Zeus anymore. Um, it's been years since we believe in this. It's been years since we believe in Jupiter or anything like that. Um, so there's a reappraisal going on, and, um, and people find their way into this thing called the catechumenate. It's this, it's this social space in the church where, uh, where you can belong but not believe, where you can take on Christian ways of, of thinking, acting, believing before you commit to all of it in baptism. 
Now, something happens, which is that um, Christians take over the West, that's one thing, uh, and, and basically there, there isn't anyone who isn't a Christian anymore, uh, and, uh, and that happens, you know, uh, fairly early on. Uh, but the other thing that happens uh, in the time surrounding that is that um, people are not being baptized as adults anymore, but most people are being baptized as infants, which, you know, as Anglicans we teach, right, and proudly. Um, but it, it changes something, right, which is that this catechesis starts to get lost. And around about the 6th or 7th century, catechesis is almost gone um, as a practice. Um, in the Reformation, the Reformers tried to uh, restore this practice of catechesis. Um, most notably, Martin Luther is the great example of this. Martin Luther was uh, set to the task of saying, well, you know, in fact, you like this. He says, you know, the German people are like swine. They know so little about what it means to be a Christian. It's like they're just sort of, he gives this picture of they're happy in their slop. They like their slop. What's to be done about them? Uh, and, and the answer is a catechism, like give them a catechism. So Luther pens two catechisms. I think he might have gone maybe gone up to three, but, but certainly the large catechism, the small catechism, and, and these become really, really important. Of course, in other traditions of, of Protestantism, you have things like the Westminster Small Catechism, you've got the Westminster Confession of Faith, you've got all these confessional documents for catechesis. In the English church, you have the prayer book catechisms starting in 1549 and going on, um, and those catechisms are generally understood to be used to teach children in a call and response, question and answer format, so that they can memorize all the questions and answers. And once you memorize all the questions and answers, you memorize the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments, you can be confirmed. And at that point, you can start receiving communion. Okay? Well, uh, that was very short-lived, I should say, and it, and it really never had a chance, um, because of course. What happens? Well, uh, people are just sort of like, well, you know, we're Protestants now, and isn't that great? And like, what do Protestants really believe? I don't know. Like, <laughs> a lot of people are completely unaware, um, but they know that they're just not like those other people, and that's okay, and there's some of that. Um, but what really comes down on the church's head is, uh, is this movement that starts in Ireland in about the late 1800s, or actually late, late 1700s, um, called the Sunday School Movement. And the Sunday School Movement is, is really kind of an interesting idea. You've got all these uh, uh, factory workers that happen to be little kids in from the country. They're illiterate. They have one day off a week. Which day is it? Sunday. And so what are they doing on Sunday mornings? They're out playing stickball in the streets, causing trouble, drinking beer, right? And of course, the churchgoers can't have that on Sunday mornings. So what do they do? So we must educate these children. You know? And uh, local school teachers and others start to take up this practice of saying, let's teach them to read and write on Sunday mornings in between the church hours. Um, so we'll get them in for the service. We'll feed them a good meal. We'll make sure that they have uh, instruction in reading, writing, and arithmetic. And that way they won't be illiterate poor urban youth they can be literate, poor urban youth, and won't that be better for everyone because they'll be able to read the Bible, which is the main idea. Okay, well, that lasts for really about 125 some odd years until you get to the Great Depression. And in the Great Depression, uh, both in the United States and in, and in Europe, 
you have uh, something come on the scene which is kind of amazing. First, you have World War I, where are those kids in factories anymore? No, they're, they're pulling them off the streets, they're putting them out to war, or there's something else going on. Or they're saying, go to high school, <laughs> right? Uh, so mandatory secondary education becomes a part of the culture. Um, and in fact, mandatory education of all stripes becomes part of this way of things. Um, that pretty much sinks Sunday school as teaching, teaching kids to read, that's for sure. It's not a literacy program anymore. What is it? It's kind of like, you know, coloring book sheets. And you remember this. If you were a kid growing up in the church, it's like, okay, kids, we're going to color this sheet, and then we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to do this. And that's Sunday school, right? Now, here's the issue. This is, what, this is what's really shocking about this whole thing. Um, Sunday school beca be became the purview of committed Sunday school teachers. And somewhere along the line, clergy stopped doing instruction because they just figured, hey, all the little kids are being taught by so-and-so. I don't have to think about it. This is great, right? So they let go of all that. Well, what happens in a small town in Texas is you get all of these, you know, uh, uh, elementary school teachers and others who are saying, and, and especially retired teachers who are, you know, mothers of preschoolers and, and, on, and, on, and ongoing, um, and they get together in Saturday morning coffee clashes, and you've got the Lutheran Sunday school teacher, and you've got the Baptist Sunday school teacher, and you've got the Episcopal Sunday school teacher, and you've got uh, lots of them, right? And they get together, and they, and they craft a Sunday school curriculum for the town, they're all working together on this. Well, what happens when Baptists, Anglicans, and, uh, and Methodists, and uh, Lutherans get together and write a Sunday school curriculum? It's, it's, a, it's, it's an inch deep and a mile wide. Um, that's the reality. So most of us grew up in a church where we were being taught inch deep, mile wide. Okay? So our, our exposure to Scripture, and especially the doctrines of the church, is minimal at that age. And this is why historically you start to get things like um, moralistic therapeutic deism, as Christian Smith puts it. It's this idea that like God just wants me to be a better person and not grow up to be a jerk and I'll be good and then that'll be fine, right? And then I'll be okay um, without knowing much about the faith. Because here's the deal. If you're a deist, you're by definition not a Christian, right? Like, if you believe that the God of the gap sort of lives out there in, in, the, in the ether somewhere, uh, like, eventually swooping down to deal with the big problems, but leaving the rest to us, right? Is that Christianity? Not at all. Um, so, this is where the majority of, uh, of uh, American youth were at the time of Christian Smith's great study, which is 2005. So, where are all these people now? Well, they're you, right? And a lot of you. <laughs> anyway, and, and here you are, and you're in, your, you're in your 20s, and you're even in your 30s, and you're thinking like, some of you have never gotten a full, thoroughgoing instruction in Christian believing ever. Um, so that's what catechesis is about. It's about saying, let's do that. <laughs> and and uh, that was actually what led to the writing of this catechism. Um, I've been pretty much thoroughly invested in this work since 2009 um, and was a part of the team that put this catechism together. Uh, this is a different kind of catechism than Anglicans have ever had because usually we just, we just put it like, 
here's the prayer book, right? And it just sort of is five pages somewhere in the back. You just stick it in there, right? And then you've got your little prayer book, and you can sort of have your catechism and, you know, maybe reference it on occasion. Well, the idea was consciously made to have a separate document because here's the thing. You're not just doing basics anymore. You can't do that and get away with it. You have to do lots of things. And so uh, this catechism goes to, you know, 360-some-odd questions, um, unlike other catechisms which might have 30 or 40. Um, the other thing here is that there's an overwhelming need for adults to be catechized, right? Because they weren't ever. Uh, so here's this adult catechism, and, the, and really the idea is that if you, if you catechize adults, you get the kids too. So, um, and that actually is true. I've seen that happen um, uh, as we've been here at Christ Church. Um, we'll, we'll have all these people kind of coming in, and, and uh, it's surprising. They'll say, like, you know, we haven't had kids yet, and then, you know, catechesis goes on, and then lo and behold, they might get pregnant, and then it's like, okay, well, now we're, we're going to have kids, and yay, this is really exciting. And, and then it's like, we're catechizing a whole generation. Well, why? Because we started with adults, and this was the idea from the start. Um, but this is the text. If you don't have it, there are copies in the back, and if you don't have it there, I can get you one. If you have a cell phone, you can actually look up the PDF of, of this and, and follow along. Is that good? Okay, any questions? Okay. Now, this is put in question and answer format, so the great thing about that is that um, I, had, I had resisted this firmly. I thought, you know, we just need a catechism with some nice paragraphs. You don't need these stupid questions and answers. What the heck? And, and, and my, my was I surprised when somebody said, no, 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 that's just good pedagogy, right? Some of you are teachers. Some of you will be. What's the first principle of good pedagogy? Not that there is one universal first principle, but... but what do, you, what do you do first with teaching? You start with what people know, right? Which is sometimes starting with what they don't know, right? So you say, we're going to start with what you know. Or you say, what don't you know? Okay, well, let's ask some questions, right? So you start with a question, and then you go into the answer. Um, if you just start spouting answers, what goes wrong? It's like, I don't even know what the problem is. Okay, so, so there's, there's just, I, I'm going to give you that one for free. You can take that to the bank um, because it's an important thing to know as a teacher, right? You have to know what, what your students don't know, uh, not what they know. Um, in fact, a lot of good teachers just say, I don't assume anything about what my students know, um, which is probably a good thing to assume at this point. Um, and it's a certainly a good thing for a catechist to assume is, you know, just assume nobody knows anything. Um, and you all are very bright and you've, you know, you're obviously very smart. But I've had people in this, in this catechesis um, class, one, one time when we were early on in planting Christ Church, uh, I noticed a young woman who's 27, at the end of catechesis, she was just weeping, just weeping. And I, I went up to her and said, what's going on? Are you having a rough time? She's like, no, I'm not. She's like, I'm just overwhelmed by the beauty of what just happened. And I said, well, what was going on? She's like, I grew up in the church, spent my whole life in the church. My dad's a theologian. Like, I have never heard ever in a church any teaching on the incarnation ever. And I said, not even on Christmas, not even on Christmas. And, and she was just overwhelmed by this happening for the first time in her life, hearing this teaching on the incarnation. And so that kind of gave me this conviction, like, oh my goodness, like, yes, that's what we got to do. Like, we're going to go do this. And this has uh, been a part of Christ Church's practices for a long time. It's like, I just teach, all I do is I teach through the catechism every year. 
And people will occasionally be like, oh, I want to go do that again. And great, go do that again. Um, one more thing that I should say. Some of you are here because you just kind of want to know what these weird Anglicans are about. Okay, that's fine. You're going to learn a lot about that. Um, don't be surprised when you just hear basic Christian teaching along with that, or actually is the basis of that. I think what can often go wrong in these classes is we say, okay, you all know what Christians believe. Let's talk about the distinctives of Anglicanism. There's, that is not a good assumption to make, <laughs> like, and I'm not going to make that assumption. I'm going to make the assumption that, uh, that some of you need to be taught various things, and, and this is actually one of the sections where we are right now, where we're going to get to that point. So before we jump in, are there any questions? Okay, go ahead. Yes. Um, yeah, I think apologetics, so I'm, I'm a bit on the fence about the usefulness of apologetics to a culture that doesn't believe in truth, right? I just think that there's, there's, there's little, little hope in saying, well, let me prove to you why Christian claims are correct, okay? Now, do I believe they can be proven? Yes. I also think, too, that part of the issue with apologetics is it actually is a kind of modernistic exercise that really didn't actually have a place in the ancient church. Um, you know, you, read, you read, read the church fathers on distinctives of Christian believing, like things like that God made the universe out of nothing, which would be a weird belief back then. I mean, most people believed in preexistent matter. So you're teaching, hey, God, God made the earth out of nothing. Well, do they prove it? No, they proclaim it because this is the God in whom they believe. Okay, so I think there's a lot more to be said for proclaiming the faith than, than defending it. Um, now, are there defenses to be made? Absolutely. Do ancient Christians issue kind of apologetic works? Um, yes. They're also, um, well, they're not exactly apologetic. Like, they're, they're usually invective against heretics. So, like, <laughs> which... Makes for great reading, right? It's really fun. You know, you're going to get a lot of clarity out of that. Um, but, but there's not much like, hey, you know, hey guys, you know, here's, here's like five proofs for the existence of God. Now, does it happen? Yes, it happens much later um, historically. So, you know, that's when we get, start getting into, into Aquinas and Anselm and, uh, and certainly, um, you know, there's some of this in Augustine, right? In the Confessions, there are apologetic turns, right? Um, but what's he doing in the midst of that? He's just sort of giving his account for how he um, reconciled this conversion that he had with, his, with the life of his mind. Um, and everybody has to do that, right? Everybody has to do that. Um, but I think that's actually probably the mistake we make is saying, hey, let's put a, apologetics out front and that'll convert people and then everything else will follow. Actually, it doesn't work that way. Um, I think that actually Anselm is right that faith seeks understanding. And so you have to, you have to come to this faith. And, and here's the question, biblically, how, does, how do you get faith? As a rational exercise? Like figuring it out? Like apologetically? No. Faith is a gift from God. And it literally, I mean, Paul speaks, faith comes through hearing, right? So how do you get faith? The Word of God goes in your ear, and then it goes down through your nervous system, right? And then, uh, now I'm going to 
branch off from biology and into uh, kind of, you know, well, I'll just say what happens. It goes into your heart, right? Essentially, like to your insides. And that's where faith starts to take root. Um, it completely, I mean, in a, in a, just at the risk of, you know, being extremely anti-modern, uh, you know, it completely bypasses your brain, right? Because it's, it's not in your brain where you come to believe. It just isn't. Um, it's, in the, it's in the core of you. It's in your, uh, the, the Greek word would be your splanknos. It's, it's in your gut, right? And, and I think we shouldn't avoid these sort of gut, gut reactions to Christian teaching. We should be very upfront about it. That's really important um, because, well, I'll just say this. I love what I love what Augustine basically says. You know, he he just he just talks all the time about how he was being seduced, like lovingly seduced. Right? You want to seduce uh, guys? You want to seduce your wife or seduce a woman? Right? Or women? You want to don't appeal to their rational brain. Like, there's probably some geek here who's like super excited about you know intellectual discussion and rational exercise, and it's like really hot, you know? But no, that's not it, right? <laughs> like, does that work? No. Like, how do you do it? Through the senses, right? You, you all know this, right? You light the really good-smelling candle. You, 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 you dim the lights. You have really good food, you know, chocolate, all these kinds of things, right? They don't appeal to our rational appetites at all. Because actually I would say, like, that just sounds frivolous. Like, why would you do that? You know? But, but no, that's, it's a different part that's being engaged here. And, and I really do think that conversion and the way that God looks at conversion is, is, yes, well, look, our reason will follow, right? It always does. But, but the start is to appeal to us in this, like, much more, uh, how should I put it? well, I'll put it like C.S. Lewis puts it, in a thick way instead of a clear way. Now, Lewis also is noting, of course, that there are some people who have to be clear because they're so thick already, right? Um, and, and part of the idea is like, if you're used to thick forms of religion with, you know, animal sacrifice and, uh, and incense and all the rest, well, then, then you have to have some rational exposure because otherwise your Christianity will just be completely, um, uh, it'll be subsumed in these deep, thick categories. Um, but for most Americans, actually for all Americans, I'll just say this, uh, and Canadians too, if there are any Canadians with us, uh, you got to be thick, right? And that's what I think a lot of people are finding really appealing about Anglican practice is like, it's super thick. Um, not, and look, if you think what we do here is thick, it's not even close to what the kind of thickness that we could have, right? Um, and probably will on certain Sundays. Um, but, but that's kind of the idea, is, is you say, um, anyways, does that answer your question? Like, I think apologetics just kind of misses the boat. There's room for it, but... Okay. Yeah. There's definitely room for it, definitely. Um, I think every Christian has to sort of wrestle with the understanding that you have to have in order to say, like, this is reasonable, right? Um, I also think it's completely wrong, too, to just sort of say that Christianity is all about feeling, because it's not. 
Um, so I, I want you to hear me also take down Schleiermacher too. Like it can't be that. You have to say like, no, there's, Christianity is not just about feeling, right? It's not just about rousing in the senses a kind of love of goodness and the rest, right? No, there is that um, for sure. Um, and in fact, you know, um, one of the, the other catechetical geek in the parish is Alex Fogelman, and he and I go around and around in circles like, you know, can you actually catechize someone who doesn't love what's good? And he says, no, you have to teach them to love what's good first. And I say, how can they learn to love what's good if they don't know what is good? So there's, but we go around in circles, and it's kind of a fun thing, chicken and egg kind of scenario, but, but it's a fun conversation, right? Um, anyway, hope that helps. Anybody else? Okay, let's start up. We're going to talk about, uh, let me get where we're going. Um, all right. So we have just covered, uh, and we're, we're getting into the meat of this, uh, the, the ascension. Didn't we cover the ascension last time? Does anybody remember? I think we did. I do this so many times I can't quite remember. But, but we'll give you, I'll give you a brief, brief rundown of the ascension. So, okay, so Jesus is crucified, right, in the creed, died, buried. Okay, all those words refer to various aspects of a very real death, right? Because, look, not all who are crucified die of the crucifixion itself, although they will ultimately be dead. There's no, like, if you're if you're handed over for crucifixion, you're going to die, okay? That, there's no other way to do that. But um, the creed says all three happen. So he's crucified, died, okay? Just to make it really clear that he did die and is buried, okay? Um, then what happens? On the third day, he rose again, right? Uh, so we have the resurrection, and then what happens? And is seated at the right hand of the Father. So we're on page 44 of the Catechism. Sorry, I should have given you the page number. So 44. Um, and Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father. This is the ascension. And of course, we read about the ascension in two places. One is, one is uh, in Mark, and the other is in the early, the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and Jesus is taken up out of their sight, right? He says, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, and he, he's taken up out of their sight. Um, we don't think about the ascension much today in the church. I'm convinced that we really need to um, because it's an important doctrine. And sometimes what people think is they think, okay, so Jesus has a bodily life, right? He is crucified bodily. Uh, he's he dies bodily. He's buried bodily. Okay, cool. We're a little sketchy about what it means to be risen from the dead bodily, because okay, it's either like a body like ours or like that you can just sort of, you know, punch and all the rest, and that, that's not really terribly uh, transformed. Or it's no body at all, just sort of a vision, right, which both get it wrong. Um, the, the, the risen body is transformed, right? He can eat, but he doesn't have to, right? He is not limited in time and space. What can he do? Yeah, the first day of the week, the door's being locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus appeared among them, and, you know, he, he just kind of can break through locked doors. Um, not even really breaking through them. He just appears and disappears, 
right? And that's totally understood as a bodily resurrection, right? But at the same time, that body is transformed. It's different, um, which, is, which is great, right? So he's got scars, right? But it doesn't look like those scars were from three days ago, right? It looks like what? They're healed, okay? Um, how are they healed in three days? Well, his body's transformed in his risen body, right? So all of that is just to kind of say, this is what Scripture's talking about. There have been many people who've misunderstood it because they've said, well, how can he be in a body when he can appear behind locked doors, when he can, like, you know, disappear in one place, reappear 200 miles away on the same day? How does that happen? Um, well, it's his risen body. Right? It's gloriously transformed. Um, I'd actually say something like this, that... Um, it is a body which conforms to the nature of spirit, okay? which, which is to say it's, it's not confined in that sense. No longer limited in time and space is what Benedict XVI says, um, which I quite like. You know, it's really true. Um, no longer limited in time and space. Well, so when most people think about what happens in the ascension, it's kind of like, well, Jesus goes bye-bye, okay? He's gone. Where is he? Who the heck knows? Uh, I don't know. Uh, and that's just sort of all you think about it. And you don't think about this sort of sustained human life anymore. What do you think about? You think, well, obviously, Jesus sort of probably gave up his body at a certain point because who needs that? And his life before God is sort of this bodily, bodiless existence, and isn't that great? And isn't that such great hope and uh, all the rest? I grew up in a, in a, in a kind of American, again, therapeutic, narcissistic, uh, deistic kind of thing, right? Um, where it was like, well, you know, you won't need your body when you're in heaven. And, and I was rather shocked to find out when I started reading about what Christians actually believe when I was about 16, uh, that that was just false. Because what do Christians actually believe? We believe in the resurrection of the body. And it's shown forth in Jesus' risen life and in his ascension. Where, what does he do? He takes his full human nature with him to the Father, okay? This is why we need to teach on the ascension, right? This thing that I've got right here, you can sort of, you know, pinch me, cut me, bleed me, all the rest, is not just a meat suit. Like, what is it? It's me. Like, I am this. Like, what you see is me, okay? Um, and it's the same with Jesus. What you see in his body is him. Um, and what you see in seeing his body is God. So when we spoke about the incarnation earlier, there's this uh, understanding of how the idioms that we use about the incarnation and about Jesus actually translate back and forth. So who dies on the cross? Just a man? Or can we really say that God dies on the cross? Yeah, we can really say that God dies on the cross. Of course we can. That's the gospel, okay? Just like we can say, who's born of Mary? God. Does God have a mother? Yes. Does God have a beginning? No. <laughs> like, so all of that is just sort of a way to kind of lay the groundwork for how you talk about it, right? Um, when you talk about Jesus doing miracles, do you say, well, that's just his divine nature doing a miracle? No. It, Jesus has done a miracle, and it is, it is uh, the, the incarnate God who has taken up into the Godhead, into the divine life in heaven. Um, what is heaven? Just ask that question. Is it sort of up there? Go ahead. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. This is an interesting question, yeah. Uh, Christian doctrine actually holds that, it, that his descent among the dead was not bodily, um, which is an interesting thing, right? Because you'd think, like, why wouldn't it be bodily going among the dead? Well, it's not, because uh, when, when we die, actually what that is is the separation of our soul or spirit from the body, right? Um, so there's a, there's a point at which it's, it's disjointed um, in death. But what happens in the resurrection? Well, it's, they're rejoined. Um, uh, it's kind of like when, when soul meets body. Um, that's kind of one way to put it. It's, it's, that's the risen life. Um, um, it's that wonderful song, when soul meets body. Anyway, um, does that help? I think, I think the descent among the dead is, is, a, is a spiritual descent. Um, now, does that mean it's not real or substantial? Nope. Now, some people militate against this. There are some Christians today who, who, who say something like, well, he, he went into hell on the cross, and isn't that great? It's like, that's not what Christians believe. Uh, the, the Apostles' Creed is emphatic about descending among the dead. Um, now, the word hell often appears in translations of the, of the, of the Apostles' Creed, um, but it is more so the place of the dead, um, which may sound like a really strange difference, but, but it's not a place of torment. Um, it's, it's the kind of pre-judgment holding in for departed souls. Is that a, that's probably the way to put it. Intermediate state for the soul in death. Okay? Yeah. So, uh, there's a very real sense in which, like, hell hasn't really been started yet. <laughs> uh, is it a kind of hell? Well, yeah, in a sense, right? But, but, um, we need to be really clear about this and say, well, no, but it's a pre, pre-resurrection of the dead, whatever it is, meaning that soul is separated from body. Now, I would, I would say that it makes, it makes an intermediate state between this moment and judgment an intermediate state that is disembodied, yes. Um, no, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. I don't think. This is really fun. What's that? Yeah, it would be. Because it's after the resurrection, right? It's the understanding that after judgment. See, judgment happens at the day of, on the day of the general resurrection, right? Is the understanding. We're getting there. So hold that thought, because we'll get there soon. I know that some of this is going to scandalize a lot of you, but here we are. Uh, <laughs> the, the ascension basically, and I'm, we're running out of time. The ascension basically is this teaching that Jesus goes to the Father in his body, um, where is he? You know, can you just sort of like, is he on the moon somewhere? You know, go to Jupiter, turn left, you'll find him there. It's, it's not that, right? Heaven, where is heaven? It's where God is. It's where the reign of God is it's full. Um, so Jesus ascends into glory is what he ascends into. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, so, so that is to say, but he takes his human body with him. So right now, in the Godhead, is a full human nature. That's fun. So what does, that, what does that give you a sense of? The quality of salvation that Christians are talking about, which is not like, we're going to get to live in a glass-bottom boat that flies around in the clouds and play harps. That's going to be so much fun. No, 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 no. Christians literally believe that with our eyeballs in our heads right now transformed, we will see God. Yeah. Okay. So you see how that's important? Like that's a really important 
understanding. Okay, now, we're gonna talk about judgment. So let's start with question 76. What does the creed mean when it says he will come again? Jesus promised that he would return. His coming in victory with great glory and power will be seen by all people and will bring this age to an end. The present world order will pass away and God will usher in a fully renewed creation to stand forever. All the saints will be together with God at that time. Okay, so let's break this down. Jesus promises that he will return, yes? So the promised return is, is certainly contained in Scripture. Uh, there's a note here to Luke 21. Um, he will come again. Um, ancient Christians all believed that Jesus would return. And in fact, in parts of the New Testament, it's like they think he could come back any time. Right? They really expect that this could happen any moment. Um, and of course, part of the New Testament has to deal with the question of, well, he seems to be late. He seems to be running late. What do we do about that? And, and the answer is, don't be alarmed by that, um, because he's going to come when he's going to come, okay? Um, and also, don't be alarmed by the fact that some people are dying whom you thought would see Jesus come back, and they haven't seen him yet, so don't, you know, turn to Thessalonians, and for both first and second, and you'll see it. Um, so what do you do in the meantime? Well, you, you work, right? <laughs> you, you, you pray, you exercise watchfulness. Right? A lot of the parables are about a return, so that's another important part, like um, the... Uh, the Ten Maidens is a great parable about a return. Uh, the, uh, the parable of the vineyard, right, is a parable about return. Um, all those things are about return. Um, so there's an understanding that Jesus will return again bodily uh, to judge the living and the dead. His coming in victory with great glory and power will be seen by all people and will bring this age to an end. So here's the, the kind of clincher here is that we live in an age and we're not quite used to talking about ages, but, but it's a good thing to think about. Um, well, how is this age characterized? Well, I would actually say that, that speaking as a Christian, like, we're, we're, we're in the last days. Right? The last days are inaugurated by these things. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension are what inaugurate the last days. Well, and even speaking further, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the people, Peter actually makes reference to this in the last days, right, from Joel. Um, so there's a great emphasis on these are the last days. So it's a time of, of waiting for the consummation of all things. Um, bring this age to an end. He comes in victory with glory, great glory and power. Uh, and one way to put this is that his, his overarching kingship is made complete on the day of judgment. Um, the present world order will pass away, uh, which means that there's a sort of order to things in the world today, um, which, which is, uh, well, consider it. What's, what's, how would you characterize this world order? There's some darkness, yes. There's sin, violence, uh, a, a, a seeking after power. Suppression of the truth, right? All kinds of things that, that, are, that are difficulties in this, in this present order. And God will usher in a fully renewed creation. So this is a language of the, the creation being renewed by the coming of heaven to earth and the two being joined together in one glorious, uh, don't want to say synthesis, but that's not a bad way to look at it actually, is that the two come together, 
but it really actually is heaven overshadowing the creation. Okay? Why? Because, because uh, the, the place of God's reign is the, new, is the renewed creation. Okay? Um, to stand forever. Um, all the saints will be together with God at that time. So it's a rejoining of the church. It's, it's in a sense, putting the band back together, right? It's, it's let's get this going. Uh, can we know when Jesus will return? No, we cannot know when Jesus will return. Jesus patiently waits for many to repent and trust in him for new life. Then he will return unexpectedly, which could be at any moment. Um, I love this because it's, it's really the truth is that Jesus' return can happen at any moment. The thing that I think is really important here is that um, what we should experience in this kind of delay, and I think we really should live with the tension of thinking that, uh, that this thing, this return to c- come again and judge the living and the dead is, we should think of it as delayed. Um, not in that it hasn't happened at the right time, um, but in that we're experiencing God's patience. Um, a patience and long-suffering with creation and with, and with human beings within it. Um, that's a good thing. Gives us more time. Gives, gives uh, more time for, uh, for the gospel to go out, more time for uh, repentance, all the rest. How should you live? Oh, go ahead. Yes, what happens when Christians are living? Well, Paul actually talks about this, right? Um, those who are dead will rise, um, and we're going to get into that because, you know, one of the final uh, kind of um, clauses in the Apostles' Creed is uh, the resurrection of the dead, and that I believe in the resurrection of the dead, so we'll get to that. Um, but, but in basic, it is that those who are dead will rise, and those who are alive will have no need to be risen from the dead because you're already alive, uh, but nonetheless will receive a transformed body at this point. Um, so there's this sort of understanding that um, the dead will rise and together with us who are alive will be judged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Yeah. I think, I think it's important to note that, that uh, you know, Christians have not taught that everyone's going to die right before, you know, it's not like kill everyone and then raise them. Like, no, some will, some will not taste death. That's kind of a wonderful thing, right? It's like, oh my goodness, there's some who won't taste death. Yes, of course. Um, so that's an important, an important thing. But bodies transformed for sure. Um, how should you live in anticipation of Jesus' return? I should anticipate with joy the return of Jesus, my Savior, and be ready to stand before Him. His promise to return encourages me to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life, and to share the hope of new life in Christ with others. So there, there are several answers here. Uh, one is that we should live with anticipation of this renewed creation and this kingdom coming. Um, this is actually as we get closer to Advent, which will be the first Sunday following Thanksgiving, I believe, is the first Sunday of Advent, it usually is. Um, is something to really focus in on in our spiritual lives. It's this question of, well, how do we live in anticipation of Jesus' return? Um, we do not, this is so sad that it's this way, but, but you know, in a lot of Christian bodies, um, eschatology is a kind of speculation, a kind of somewhat biblically informed speculation upon the end. Um, 
that to me is rather unexciting. Uh, to me, the really exciting thing eschatologically is thinking about our end in Christ who is to come again to judge the, the living and the dead, right? So we really need to think about what, what will life be like at that moment um, so we can, we can actually flesh that out. Will we be fully sanctified? Yes. <laughs> will we see God? Yes. Um, will we see God in His essence? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. I don't know. Possibly not. Uh, um, but, but consider this, that that is, that is our end as human beings, is to be like Jesus. Um, and so, uh, living eschatologically means we look forward to that end. We live with constant expectation of that. And so, the Catechism gives a, a bit of an account of this. His promised return encourages me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I think we have to be careful about this, but, you know, how do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? Let's just ask that question. Like, this is a good question for charismatics, I'd like to know. Uh, but but I, think, I think the right answer um, is that we should expect that um, in progressive victory over sin, as well as the kind of sanctification that comes through prayer, participation in the life of the church and the sacraments, we, we become full of the Holy Spirit, right? Because what is the Holy Spirit supposed to do? Turn you into a good charismatic? Maybe, probably. Might not look like what you think it's going to look like. But what? What does the Holy Spirit do? Yeah, all those things, yeah. Um, I would actually say brings, brings order to our spiritual lives, you know? So, like, I say one of the signs of the Holy Spirit really working in you is that you start to experience some ordered prayer life. What do you know? Isn't that amazing? Like, yes, of course. Um, you start to do things that are, um, that are really advantageous in the spiritual life. Um, so, it's an amazing thing. And, and I think that um, certainly some of you are, are considering being confirmed, and, and it's something that I want to encourage you in because one of the things that you ask for in confirmation is the increase of the Holy Spirit. And the bishop prays for that with his hands on your head uh, to say, that's what we want, right? That's, that's, what's, that's what's happening there. Um, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life. And I want to say this strongly because I think there are a number of people coming from Christian traditions, well, somewhat Christian traditions, where, uh, where holiness is sort of deemed unimportant or kind of great if it happens, doesn't have to, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice? Uh, you know, it's, it's just that. As an Anglican, I must say that holiness of life is of utmost importance. Um, we almost just will come right out and say it, that for a person to be, um, uh, well, justified before God means that they're going to be progressively sanctified as well. Um, to have the Holy Spirit, to participate in the life of the church, to pray, all those things will make you progressively holier. They should. What we should pay special attention to is when we're not, right? So we should pay special attention to when we are, uh, I don't want to use the word backsliding, but I might you know, use the word backsliding. Um, and not just that, but, but, but worse, when we notice that there's congestion in our spiritual lives, when we're not getting holier, when we're not growing in faith, when we're full of anxiety, and some of that's clinical and some of that is just anxiety, right? We need to be aware that, uh, that, um, that 
that, that God is constantly pouring upon us grace, and that grace actually is not just sort of a painting over of our nature, right? It's not like what you do when you buy a new house and the house has like mustard green walls in the kitchen, right? And you say, oh, this has to go. We're going to paint it over and paint it white. But the mustard is still there, and someday your kids will peel the paint off, and there will be that mustard color. You know, it's no, 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 no. That's not grace. Grace is actually working upon our nature to transform it, okay, so that that's no longer there. Do you see? Um, so, so that is the kind of holiness that, that, uh, that is the point of sanctification. Um, now, does it happen like that? Sometimes. Okay, I have known people who have been almost like instant sanctification, like unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, my, my cousin's dad was just a horrible man, just a horrible man, horrible. And he came to faith and boom, like, now I know it wasn't instant, but I, I met him about 10 years ago, first time since I was a little kid, and I remember, he's just a horrible guy. And then I met him, he was like the nicest man I've ever met, you know, because he just, he just, he just glowed with this light of sanctification. Um, so. I think it's good to end there. I do want to extend this to you. You know, we as Anglicans believe that sanctification is actually attainable, right? That, that it's not just sort of like this idea that, oh, well, maybe someday God will make me holy or, or I'm just going to be a piece of trash until, until Jesus sort of picks me up in his boat and uh, then takes me off and whisks me away to maybe, maybe, maybe be cleaned up before entering heaven, right? Um, I will tell you, actually, I believe in final sanctification, right? But I also believe in sanctification in this life. Um, and and look, look, I think if you're gonna, if you wanna go to heaven, okay, you better get started. Like, because this life of sanctification is important and, it, and it's also good. Um, if you're having troubles with repentance, right, as you should, right, it's, it's obviously a struggle. Repentance is, is a struggle, it obviously is. Um, all of us struggle with repentance. If you're struggling with holiness of life, look, there's a remedy for that. Uh, there are many remedies for that. But I would encourage you to get the kind of direction that will help. I would encourage you to get some counsel. I would encourage you to make confession. I would also encourage you to be as invested in the sacramental life of the church as possible. I think one of the things we have going on in society today is we have a lot of people who want to go to heaven, but not a lot of people who want to participate in the life of the church. What do you think heaven is? right? Like, how do you expect to be with God when being with God on Sunday mornings in the life of the worshiping body of the church is sort of like, oh, it would be good if I could get to church this morning, right? Like, no. <laughs> uh, so, I really want to say that, you know, one of the first things that I do in triaging uh, spiritual patients as a spiritual director is, is I ask those questions, like, so how regular are you in, in church attendance? And sometimes I'll just be like, I'm going to bust you. Like, you're not. Uh, well, no, I am. I'm like, as much as I can. No, you're really not. <laughs> I don't see you that much. Um, but for the most part, people who come to spiritual direction are already doing that. But not always. Um, you know, it's things like, do you pray daily? Well, sometimes when I get around to it. It's like, well, we should work on that, right? Um, we should definitely work on that. So those are the kinds of things that we look for. It's like, you should, you should sort of get an ordered spiritual life, right? That would be amazing, right? And uh, you sort of look at yourself and you say, man, if I could have like half an hour to pray every day, and if I could just like start doing that, 
and have it not be this great burden where I just sort of sit there and don't know what to say. And I'm sort of dumbfounded, like, what do I do? And here's this half hour, and thanks, God, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm, like, bored for the rest of the time. Like, if I could pray for half an hour a day, it would be awesome. And, like, as a spiritual director and as a priest, I can help you do that, right? I can give you some stuff to do in half an hour. We, shoot, we could fill two hours, <laughs> but, but not, not immediately. Uh, and, and things like, you know, I don't know what to do about this, like, problem of having a spiritual life. I'm, I'm really struggling with this sin, and I can't seem to get over it. It's like, we can help. There's help for all of it right? There's help for addiction. There's help for um, all manner of things. So, and is it easy? Of course it's not easy, Uh, but the great news is that this is how grace works, right? You can't do it. God's got to do it. Um, And so, this appeal for grace that that I want you to see, this appeal for the grace of, of, of Jesus, who's at the right hand of the Father, is so important, um, and it really does show us, like, the kind of life that we ought to lead as Christians. Um, and so, that's my appeal for sanctification. Um, I'd, I'd say that, um, that it really does also speak to the necessity of living this Eucharistic life. Um, so, you know, why do we gather for the Eucharist every Sunday? Because Jesus told us to? Like, is that enough? I, I, I would rather say this. I'd rather say, because we seek to participate in the risen body of Jesus. Yeah? Which is His church. Oh, that's funny. Suri just told me, I couldn't find anything about the Eucharistic life. <laughs> um, but, but nonetheless, look, what we gather here together to do is, is to receive the gift of participation in the life of Jesus. That's what we're doing. Um, that's what Paul says the Eucharist is, okay? I'll, just, I'll, I'll get away from myself and just say, that's what Paul says. So you can, you can take your argument to Paul if you want to argue with Paul. Um, but, but think about the joy of that, right? Think about what that is. Is that not the very life of heaven? Yeah. Like, that's why we say in the beginning of the Eucharistic rite, like, therefore with the angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, because in one sense, heaven is coming to us. In another sense, just think about this church just being elevated. That's a good one too. Um, are both true? Yeah. Okay. So, just some thoughts on that. Um, that's what inspires the life of holiness, is you say, I want to experience that more and more and more and more and more. Um, and, and the great news about that is, you cannot possibly exhaust it. Like, because God is an infinite abyss of goodness. You can never penetrate fully. Like, there's always more. Always. And just when you think, like, oh, I've arrived. Nope. Nope. Uh, uh, and one more. I know I'm going to drive people crazy by doing this, but, but one more is, look, um, not only is there always more, but God saves the best for last. So what you find in the spiritual life is that just when you think, like, I've got it all, I'm doing great. Nope. Like, you'll look back 10 years before and you'll think, like, how did I even live like that? Um, so the best is always saved for last. And so keep that in mind. That should, that should motivate you, right? Say, I want the best wine, which is going to be later. <laughs> and so, yes, okay, great. We'll start soon. Oh, no.